All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get rolling here. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the provision that you've made in your Son, Jesus Christ. The opportunity that is ours even now to just take your word and understand more fully the responsibility that we have as Christians to live for you, to allow your Holy Spirit control of our lives. We just pray, Father, that you will help us just to be those that are willing to abide by a righteous standard, the standard of your word. We know, Lord, that we can't do it in our own strength, so teach us how to draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us so that we might be everything that we should be in these days, light in the world and salt in the earth. We'll give you the praise for it because you're worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we uh, are talking about some of the things that causes a husband, a spirit, to react uh, to the wife's spirit. And uh, we talked last time about uh, the matter of priorities and the matter of of uh, the wife's priorities getting into line with the husband's priorities. Um, we, we discussed the, the whole idea of uh, flexibility and uh, the responsibility you have to, uh, to fall into line in terms of, of allowing God to use the circumstances to uh, bring out character in you. Now, we turn now to another uh, subject, and that is when, when a wife uh, resents her husband. That is especially his past failures. Husband very quickly will pick up and sense uh, when a wife is, uh, is, is irritated from some of the things that have happened in the past. In other words, when full forgiveness is not evident. And uh, when, when the wife uh, fails to really deal with this problem of forgiveness, then of course there's, uh, there, there is a problem and uh, there is a, a, a sort of a conflict that arises in the relationship. And, and a wife often, uh, and this is sad, but it's, it's uh, I'm afraid too often true, uh, she may use those past failures as a, sort of a leverage to get her own way uh, in regard to future things. Uh, a husband, for instance, makes a mistake, and face it now, husbands make mistakes. And because they're leaders uh, and have a responsibility to make major decisions, uh, a lot of times the, the, uh, the mistake that the husband makes is disastrous on the whole family. And it's that kind of a thing that, that really causes a, a, a difficult uh, problem with the wife because she's so much affected by it. If it was something that only affected him, it wouldn't be nearly as bad, uh, but it affects the whole family. And uh, rather than just have a sweet and submissive spirit about it, uh, she watches carefully. And when the husband is about to make another bonehead play, then she says, you remember last time you did that? You better listen to me this time. And uh, remember last time you didn't listen to me? You got yourself in trouble. 
And that kind of a thing then really causes a husband to, to feel put down. And uh, many times he just wants to uh, crawl into a hole and pull the hole in on, on top of him uh, because he realizes, of course, the wife is right. But he says to himself, how in the world can I lead the family with that kind of an obstacle where she's holding over my head the things that, uh, that I did, or at least it seemed uh, on the surface to be wrong. Now, uh, the husband has to understand some things. And I, again, want to touch on this because I think it's, it's so important that, that, the, uh, uh, that we just mention this. I think it's, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, the major reason I'm doing it is because I think you should know that if I were talking to your husbands, uh, there are a few choice things I would tell them uh, that, that really ought to, uh, to help them focus upon things that are, are proper and right. And you need to know that so that you have some confidence that I'm not just being one-sided on this matter. And it also helps you to know that there is a scriptural solution to this. But again, I warn you, when I give you these solutions, it's not your place to go home and preach to your husband about them. And some wives do that and then causes even greater result. Pastor Steele said thus and so. And uh, therefore, you should, if you won't listen to me, at least listen to him. You know, that sort of thing. So be careful and uh, just let the Lord do his work. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he'll work through your husband. But let me just mention a couple of passages of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, first of all, and verse 13. It says this, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, that is, to achieved or to come uh, to the final uh, conclusion. I, I haven't got it made myself. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul recognized in the whole text here is a recognition of the fact that Paul had a wrong goal. The focus of his life was upon a goal that was totally wrong. The true goal, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that was a goal that wasn't even in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He, he was headed straight into the whole matter of legalistic Judaism, even to the, the place that he had zeal without knowledge. He had zeal that was so great that uh, he even calls himself the greatest of all sinners because of this wrong focus, because of this wrong goal. And because he was headed the wrong way, everything he was doing along the way uh, was wrong as well. His whole life was, was headed in the wrong direction. And uh, he, he, of course, could have spent the rest of his life uh, really wallowing in all of the mistakes that he'd made because his whole life was a mistake. Here he was a, a, nearly into his middle age, and his whole life had been a mistake because of a wrong goal. And he, he, he talks about this, and he makes very clear how wrong it all was, and uh, he says, all of those things that were my goal at that time, all of the things that I used to think impo important, when I met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, everything changed. My whole life was rearranged. And those things which formerly I counted gain, I now count but loss 
for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And my new goal is focused here. Now, Paul, Paul is saying, though, that he doesn't waste his time feeling bad about his old goal and all of the mistakes he made. But rather, he forgets those things which are behind. And he presses forth to those things which are before and presses toward the, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He, in essence, says, I don't have enough time left to waste time feeling bad over my past and, and worrying about all my past failures. I don't have that kind of time because I've got to make up for time. I've got to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's my new goal. I want to win Christ. I want to have a knowledge of Christ. I want, to, I want to achieve the purposes of Christ. And therefore, I have a new goal. And I erase this from my memory. Even though physically, mentally, he could recall it. He didn't waste his time worrying about it. There was nothing he could do about the past. But there was something he could do about the future. And you see, that's the thing that any person who has had wrong goals needs to examine. First of all, they need to set a new goal and hopefully a proper proper goal. And obviously, you know, a husband, for instance, that had a goal of getting rich and as a result of that wrong goal, he lost his shirt and he left the family poverty-stricken. Well, you see, it doesn't do him any good to turn right around and go toward that same goal again because the goal is wrong. He that would get rich quick has an evil eye. He that would be rich, actually, has an evil eye. Your whole focus is wrong. And uh, as a result of that wrong focus, there are disastrous results. You reap what you sow. And therefore, you need to have a new goal. What's the new goal? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and addeth no sorrow with it. You see? So the husband needs a whole new direction. He needs a whole new goal. Again now, though, it's not your place to make him see that. That's something God has to teach him. Because anything that you say in regard to this, other than, of course, uh, as, he, as he allows and as he asks for your counsel and your advice, anything at all that you, that, that you might add will be interpreted as being a rebellious spirit. And you see, he'll never learn from a source of rebellion. God has to teach him. So if his goal is wrong, God's going to have to direct his focus on a new goal. And the wife with a meek and quiet spirit, the wife with a patient understanding of her husband, and the patient understanding of, of, of these wrong goals that he may have, and he may have to have several, and several bad um, results before finally he realizes that seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is really the only way to fly. And when he does, then the blessing of the Lord is attended upon him. Now that's, that's something that, that just over a period of time needs to be worked through and needs to be worked out. But remember that God will teach him this and he will ultimately be able to see what is the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you gals that... When a husband has a wrong goal, God is in the process right now in answer to your prayers 
And in response to your meek and quiet spirit, God is in the process of putting him through the mill. And what happens so often is when a gal thinks, okay, it's my responsibility to change the goals and the focus of my husband, then you see God lets up the pressure because God will never allow one to be tested above these able, but will with the testing make a way of escape that he may be able to bear it. And you see, God will let up his pressure because you're putting pressure on, and God doesn't want him to have that double pressure. He wants to do it, but he'll back off and let you try. But guess what? When you do it, then you've got a wrong goal. If you really are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'll let God be God. You'll let God give to that person what's needed. You say, but God's prospering him, and he's getting worse, and he's setting worse goals. Well, maybe God wants to teach him a lesson through prosperity. And maybe he wants to raise him up high enough so that when he drops him, he'll feel the bounce. All right? So you let God be God and let him do what he wants to do in the life of your husband. But meanwhile, don't think that God is going to let him get by with it. There will be a Damascus Road experience. Somewhere down the line, God is going to bring them up short and say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you following a goal which is not the goal of God? And then when that husband realizes that he's failed, you have to really be a, a, a source of strength to him to help him forget all of the mistakes that he made rather than remind him of it. Don't you see? God doesn't want you to be in the business of reminding him of his past failures. God wants you to be in the business of supporting him so that he'll ultimately move toward proper goals. Now, another passage that I would use if I were speaking to husbands is Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, in verse 6, it says, Let him that is taught in the word share with him that teacheth in all good things. Now, that particular verse is simply saying that if somebody ministers to you the word of God, you should do something for them financially. And uh, there are some people that take that verse, and then they say that the next verse is the, is the context. And that all this is talking about in verse 7 is simply that uh, uh, when, you, when you sow to uh, this, you're going to reap as far as giving is concerned. But that nothing can be further from the truth. Because verse 7 qualifies it and spreads it out. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man soweth. It's not just talking about giving. It's talking about every single area of the life. And in case you don't, still don't believe it, then the next verse makes it very, very clear. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You don't sow wild oats and then pray for crop failure. And that's one of the problems that you constantly have when a husband sets a wrong goal. When the husband sets the wrong goal, then immediately you see there are consequences that are built in to that wrong goal and wrong direction. And the consequences will come out in many, many ways. Uh, there are uh, uh, virtually, every, uh, virtually every problem that people have in terms of uh, uh, problems, uh, uh, financial problems or marriage problems or uh, problems with the children or this sort of thing, any of these things that we would counsel people about, they are related to wrong decisions. 
You make a wrong decision. You choose wrongly. And the result is consequence in the life. You see, what people want when they come in for counseling is to get rid of the consequences. They don't really or haven't many times faced the fact that there needs to be a change of direction of the life. If a man loses everything he has financially and he says to himself, ah, I wonder how I could get back out of this. And uh, when he comes to the counselor, if the counselor does it right, the, the counselor, rather than focusing upon the failure of the project, focuses upon the wrong motives that he had in the very beginning. And if the motives were correct, in fact, I find this to be almost invariably true. When a man's motives are correct in a decision that he made and the result is suffering, the guy never comes for counseling. He knows he did the right thing. He accepts from the Lord the, the, the uh, suffering that has come because uh, God, the Lord uh, uh, giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he, he relaxes and, and takes it. And he never comes in for counseling. The people that come in for counseling are down deep in their conscience. They know they made a wrong decision. And what they want is, how can I get rid of the consequences without changing the decision that I made? I don't want to go a different way. I still, a man, uh, uh, as we said a moment ago, he that would be rich uh, hath an evil eye. Well, the man still has an evil eye. But you see, he's not getting rich. And so he wants to know, how can I prevent the consequences of my action without changing my action? And you see, it just doesn't work. You've got to change your action. That's one of the reasons why even after a person gets right with God and gets his motives straight, he still has disastrous results. He's still reaping what he sowed. That's not God's punishment. That's just natural attrition. It's just a natural thing that comes. I like what Charles Ryrie says. He says, you, you can be forgiven by God, but that doesn't change the facts of history. And you see, there are things that will naturally take place. But now, of course, those sufferings become a blessing simply because your focus is correct. So it's saying here, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. It's a clear choice. Paul, all the rest of his life, was branded, branded as a man who had persecuted the Christians. At one point he said, I'm the worst sinner that ever lived. I'm the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church of Christ. He lived with that, not as a deep resentment from the past, but rather as, as just a fact of history. And he, he dealt with that thing, but there were still consequences that came as a result of, of that life that he had lived with wrong focus and wrong goal. But on the other hand, it says in verse 9, in the light of this, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Now that has to do with every aspect of your life. Don't get tired of doing the right thing. You, you may have the, the months and even years sometimes of the consequences of wrong goals. And those things are continuing to come. But you know, the marvelous thing is there's a new harvest going to be come, coming. And as you plant seeds, don't get weary because all the wild oats are coming up. There's a new harvest coming. Don't get impatient. 
in God's own time, that will begin to bear fruit. And over a period of time, the, the harvest will be reaped with rejoicing, and you can be sure of that. And so a husband that's made a mistake and had a wrong direction, a wrong goal, now you see he needs to refocus and begin planting good seed and doing things right. When he does, then he will reap great benefit. Well, now you, you can see then that there is a solution that God will have to teach him in his own time. But now what about the wife? The wife needs to realize her role in this whole matter, when a husband has had failures, rather than being uh, a, a person who is, is uh, uh, saying to the husband and playing God with the husband and saying, saying, you had no business doing that. If you'd only listened to me, then it would have been totally different. You mustn't do that. Rather, you need to turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to run through very quickly today Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 29. Let me just read it first of all, and then you'll be able to kind of set it up in your mind. Uh, background on this is, it's talking about putting off the way you used to be and putting on what you ought to be. Take it off like old clothes. Put it on like new clothes simply a matter of a pragmatic decision that the Christian must make. Am I going to act like God wants me to act, or am I going to act like the flesh wants me to act, like Satan wants me to act? It's a clear choice. And so it, it makes some, uh, it brings out a number of things. For instance, it says that you're not to, verse 25, you're not to lie anymore, but you're to become a truth teller. teller. And the motivation for that is that you are the same body. Because you're the same body, members one of another, it, when you're lying, you're lying to yourself because you're a part of that body. All right? Then it says, it talks about anger in verse 26. It talks about stealing in verse 28. And then it talks about corrupt communication. Let me read now. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. All right? Start in verse 29. Let all corrupt communication, logos, logos is the basic message, the saying, the expression, the, 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 the basic truth that is uh, coming forth. It is a word that means expression of thought. And uh, there's nothing wrong with expressing your thoughts as long as those uh, expressions are not sapros, corrupt. This is a word that was used in, in classical literature to speak of being rotten like fruit. Spoke of being worn out like clothes. The idea of the word is useless, worthless, good for nothing. Don't let any worthless speech come out of your mouth. Now, you can begin to understand what the worthless speech is 
when you understand the alternative that God gives you. The alternative is edification, building up. See that in just a moment. Building up. Anything that is not building up, God says, is corrupting. It's tearing down. So you see, within this context, sapros means to tear down. The words that you use with your husband, do they tear down? A wife cannot say to a husband, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't have made that mistake without tearing down. See what I'm saying? It is a tearing down. Now, it says that rather than tearing down, it is to be good. Now, that's the word agathos. We've seen that many times in our study. It means good in character and beneficial in effect. It means the very character of what you say should be proper and right, and it should be beneficial. It should have some beneficent result for the individual involved, not just for you, not just as a selfishness, but rather it should have real purpose. And in order to understand that further, he says it's to be used. The word use is the word C-H-R-A-O-M-A-I. Kraomai, which means as there is a need. It's the word for necessity. As there is a need. That is, it's to be appropriate. Appropriate. Words that are appropriate are like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That's what the word of, uh, book of Proverbs tells us. Appropriate words. We need to use appropriate words. When is an appropriate word? Well, a soft answer turns away wrath. You see, we think an appropriate word is, if the husband is angry, we answer with anger. That's not right. A soft answer turns away wrath. What you need to do is go through uh, that listing that was made up in my wife's class of all of the different kinds of positive words and all the different kinds of negative words in order to understand what the word, what the necessary word is in any given situation. Because God tells us how to answer. Not only that, but he tells us that when we stand before those that are persecuting us, he'll put the words in our mouth. That we don't have to even concentrate on preparing a little speech. Usually when we prepare a speech, we say the wrong thing. I find more and more that when I write things down to people and trying to, uh, you know, given ideas. I write things down uh, that uh, when it's a matter of my opinion rather than the Word of God, it gets me in more trouble. You always seem to say the wrong thing. But you see, when you allow the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit to give you just the right words to say, of course, tempered by an understanding of Scripture, then you can give that word in season and properly. So it says, good to the use or as there is a need for edifying edify. Now, edifying is the word O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E-O. Oikodomeo. And it means, literally, build a house. 
oikos is the house, tomeo means to build. So therefore, it's the building of a house. Now, I think you should understand something. When there is a need for building up, let me ask you, your husband has just had a disaster. Wouldn't you say that that would be a time that it would be appropriate to build him up rather than tear him down? See what I'm saying? He's failed. Nobody needs to tell him he's failed. When a man fails, he knows it. He may, you may say, well, he doesn't know it. But you know what the problem is? He doesn't want you to know he knows it. He's hiding. He hides behind this mask. But believe me, behind that mask, he is hurting. He's desperately hurting. He knows this has been a disastrous thing. How am I ever going to tell my wife? Now that's the thing that comes to his mind. I've talked with more of these guys before they've talked to you. They come in, you know, and they say, how am I ever going to face my wife? This has happened. And not only that, she told me it would happen. How am I ever going to explain it to her? You see, they're afraid to come home. You know, there's a lot of men. You, you know, you, you may not realize your power over a man, but there's a lot of men who actually stop at the bar and get a drink before they go home, get courage enough to go home after some of the things that they've done and said and so on. And it, 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 they find better companionship at the bar, you know, because nobody cares. And it's a, it, it's a tough sort of thing to go home where, where there really is, it's a real world, you know, they'd like to escape from that real world. And, you know, it's, it's really refreshing to have a fellow come and say, you know, I, uh, I have uh, some real problems here and did, did this and made a wrong decision and caused disaster. And you know, the greatest asset that I have at a time like this is my wife really understands. You know? That's the greatest asset a man can have in the human sense, to have a wife that understands. A wife that will say, Honey, we had nothing to start with, and we got nothing now. But we have each other. And together we're going to build. And you see, that is building a man up. Well, you know, just telling him. Why, with your abilities and with all of the, uh, the brains that you have, why, you're going to pull through this thing. And even though this may be a total loss, we're going to be able to set some new direction as a result. And a husband that has a wife like that is more prone to say to his wife, What do you think about this, honey? See? So there is to be the building up. Now, mind you now, I'm applying this. This isn't all that this refers to. It refers to a whole lot of other things, too. It's not just talking about husbands and wives here. It's talking about every area of your life. Whenever you find somebody who's just down, that's not the time to tear them down further. It's not the chance. You know, wild animals do this. They find a wounded animal, and they use the opportunity to jump upon him. But you're not animals. At least you're not supposed to be animals. You're supposed to be human beings with love and compassion and care and concern. And you are to respond not by tearing down further, not by taking advantage and moving in for the kill, but rather by being sympathetic and helpful. Now, it goes on then and, and gives us a purpose clause. The purpose of the whole thing is that it might 
do something special. God's always doing this. He uses suffering for this purpose. He puts you through the mill. He allows you to have employers that are, are uh, uh, perverse. He, he, he has all kinds of things because he has a message to get through. And what's the message? It says that it may minister, that is the word didomai, which is to give or to bestow. One common usage was when two uh, people would exchange a ring, they would say, I give you this ring for your benefit. I give you this ring. I bestow this ring upon you. When a man and wife, a man and, and his bride, uh, stand before the wedding altar and exchange the ring, they grant the ring, they bestow the ring upon that other person. That's the idea of giving here. It's a bestowment that you may bestow what? Charis. What's charis? Grace. 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 That's God's message. God wants to get a message across. And the message is this, that when the most undeserving person in the world comes into the presence of God, God offers him grace. And that most undeserving person who has been the recipient of grace is you. Now God wants you to reflect that grace in your life. If ever there was a person who did not deserve to be forgiven, it was you, right? Yet, we're unwilling many times to forgive. Now, that's of course something that's brought out so very, very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, excuse me, can't put my finger on it right now, I won't even bother trying, um, but the Lord Jesus gave a parable, you remember, and the parable was that the man who owed a debt he could never pay. And God said, or Christ said in that parable, that that man forgave him a debt, forgave him that debt, full and free. And then, of course, that same man went out and failed to forgive another man who owed him a pittance, just a small amount. Now, the marvelous thing is that God, God demonstrates by that grace. It's the grace of God that brought salvation. It's the grace of God that teaches us that denying worldly lusts and ungodly thinking, we should live soberly and righteously in this present age. It's the grace of God that is the constant thing that God bestows upon us. He wants us to see grace, but he wants us to reflect grace as well. He wants the grace of God to be manifest in the hearts and lives of each and every person. And so that's, a, that's why he tells us that we are to minister grace by that building up rather than by the tearing down. What does your husband need more than anything else in a situation like he's found himself? He doesn't need your resentment, but rather he needs a, a visual aid, an example of God's grace. 
ministering grace or giving grace, bestowing grace upon the hearer. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is all that God is free to do on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The, the, the justice of God was freed to bestow grace because of what Christ accomplished. And I want to tell you, whatever sense of justice you might have is also made of, is, is also tempered and uh, able to be turned about to grace because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for you. Really the real actions in heaven anyway. I, I guess maybe the thing that we need more than anything else is to focus our attention heavenward and realize the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with that which will be hereafter. Realizing that uh, I can count it all joy when I fall into diverse temptations. Why? Simply because this isn't where, I, this isn't, this isn't where it is. The real fun starts after we're gone, after we're in glory. That's where the real action is. This is only the staging area. We're just pilgrims and strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not home yet. I remember a, a man that got off the ship coming home after long terms in Africa. And on the same ship was Teddy Roosevelt coming back from Africa from one of his big safaris. Got off the, got off the boat and here was a blaring band and uh, crowds of people just hoping to catch a glimpse of Teddy Roosevelt. And this dear old missionary got off of that ship and there was nobody to meet him. Can you imagine the lonely feeling to come all of that distance and the ship apparently had uh, arrived on a different schedule than had been anticipated and the people that had supposedly uh, were supposed to pick him up, uh, they weren't there. And He looked around in this vast crowd of people, saw no one. Here he was all alone. And he was, he was the real hero. Teddy Roosevelt went to kill lions. This man went to save souls. And he was the real hero, but nobody recognized his heroic attempts. And he was walking very sadly away, tears in his eyes, when it seemed as though the Lord said to him, My son, don't worry. You're not home yet. And you know, there's some of, some dear gals that, that kind of get the idea that if, if they're if they're the, the maze that their family has found themselves in, if that doesn't get straightened out, uh, then then th th there's no hope, there's no future. But you're not home yet. You're just in the staging area. You haven't begun. And in His presence is fullness of joy. His right hand are pleasures forevermore. The real question, the real question that we have to face is: Are you willing to suffer if need be? to be able to demonstrate to your husband and to all those around you grace. Grace. Grace could never be demonstrated in a world where there was no need for grace, right? There has to be sinners. There has to be people who make mistakes and people who ordinarily would cause resentment so that you have a backdrop on which you have the opportunity to demonstrate grace. Now, I'm convinced that wives, I, I, my wife especially, has to show a great deal of grace. All wives do. I mean, just the fact that you're married to a man is, is uh, 
you know, you're, you're off on the wrong foot to begin with, you know, in that regard, because men fail. Men make mistakes. And I'm probably, you know, really a pro at that. And so my wife has to spend a lot of her energy showing grace to me. And I'm such a lout sometimes, you can't believe some of the awful things I do. Just ask her, she'll tell you. But the thing is that I'm a Christian and I, and I, I have goals that are set. And uh, uh, the result is that you know, our goals are pretty well mutual goals in, in uh, virtually everything we're doing. And, and uh, we have a happy home and just all kinds of good things going for it. And she still has to show grace. So you see... Some of you have an unsaved husband and maybe a husband who beats you and uh, you have all of these problems. But let me ask you the question. Which of the two of you has a greater opportunity, my wife or yours, in terms of what's really important, the demonstration of grace? Well, you, of course. Because you have a backdrop on which grace will be seen much more clearly. Much, it's going to be much more defined in your situation. You see, nobody comes up to my wife, or very few people, only those that know us very well, like my brother and his wife and so on. They're the only ones that come up to my wife and say, I don't know how you can stand living with Paul Steele. You know? She doesn't get that a whole lot. People, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're just being gracious, but uh, nevertheless, they don't say that. But you know that some of you have heard that, particularly from unsaved people. They've come up to you and they've said, I don't know how you can live with such a man. And you can turn around and just say, maybe you won't use this word because they wouldn't understand it, but you can just say, grace. That's what it is. It's all the grace of God. That's what it is. Grace of God flowing through me, reflecting from my life. And you have a tremendous opportunity to demonstrate that grace. So you see, rather than allowing those things that tear down to come out of your mouth, allow those things that build up to come out of your mouth so that you can be an example of what grace is all about in practical outworking. Now, it doesn't quit there, though. See, this one is such a problem that there needed to be some additional teaching on it. And so it spins off of this. Even though it relates to the whole picture, it spins off particularly of this concept and idea. Verse 30 says to stop an action already going on. Stop grieving the Spirit. Do you realize that when you have corrupt communication come out of your mouth, when you're tearing down, you're not only hurting your husband, you are hurting the Spirit of God. And so therefore, it says, quit grieving the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. He's the one that indwells your heart and wants to control your life. And uh, so you are to stop doing that. Now remember that when you grieve the Spirit, you are, you are involved in an ethical thing. There are two ways you can, you can uh, get out of fellowship with Jesus Christ. You can grieve the Spirit or you can quench the Spirit. Now, the way you grieve the Spirit, there is a moral or ethical issue, such as here, 
right? You grieve the Spirit by stealing, because God says thou shalt not steal. You can grieve the Spirit by lying, because God's Word has all kinds of prohibitions to lying. It's a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. And you grieve the Spirit when you deliberately do something that God's Word tells you you're not to do. When you deliberately disobey. All right? Quenching the Spirit, though, there is no moral or ethical issue. No moral or ethical issue. I say, well, what's that? Well, that's, of course, things like just uh, not praying as you ought, not being as thankful as you ought, uh, not uh, 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 not uh, uh, being a, a, a witness for Jesus Christ. Christ never said how many people you had to witness to every day. Uh, and therefore, rather than witnessing as you should, uh, you, you let up on it. Well, that quenches the Spirit of God. There's no or moral issue. Uh, nobody says you have to uh, witness to ten people today or you'll, you'll quench the Spirit. But when you don't take up an opportunity to be a witness, then you quench the Spirit. That's the idea. And there's a difference between the two. But when you do either of those, then you're out of fellowship. And the Spirit of God is not in control. You cannot be said to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God still indwells you, but He indwells you as a grieved Spirit. And therefore, He's allowing you to go ahead and do it your own way until you recognize that's disastrous. Then you use 1 John 1.9 and get back in fellowship with Him. You move out of carnality then back into spirituality as a result. What it's saying is that when you allow corrupt communication to come out of your mouth, you have not only, only grieved your husband, you've grieved the Spirit. You not only have broken fellowship with your husband, you have broken fellowship with the Spirit of God. Now because of that, he goes on to elaborate on some of the things that actually can cause this problem. He says, let all bitterness, a word all means any manner of bitterness, that's resentment, harboring grudges. Keep in mind Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 tells you that God brings suffering into your life, chastisement into your life to mature you. But something else can happen. If you respond wrongly to the suffering that God brings into your life, you can become bitter because you have failed of the grace of God. You have failed to draw upon the resources of grace that He has given you for the chastisement that He has allowed. God's given you a bad husband, and He gives you all kinds of abuse. All right? God allows that. Why? To mature you. But if you refuse to be matured by it, the alternative is bitterness. And bitterness always comes when you fail. You fail of the grace of God. And a root of bitterness springs up, and the result of it is many are defiled by it. Now, it says then that all bitterness, all resentment, all wrath, thumos is a word that means boiling. It means emotional turbulence. It means, in the common English idiom, it means to do a slow burn. That's what it means. It is a slow burn. That is the slow burning wrath that's within your heart. It's something that, that keeps eating away at you. You may not express it outwardly. Eventually it will boil over, but it may not be expressed outwardly at first. Clamor or anger, that's antagonism of mind when properly or improperly used. 
clamor. It's the idea of the outcry of passion. It means literally to yell and scream at people. You ever do that? And not to do that. Evil speaking, that's the word blasphemia, from which we get our word blaspheme. It means malignant, injurious speech. It means speech that is used with an intent to harm. With all malice, that's all kinds of evil. The word kakia is a word, a general word for evil. Now, all of these things, it says in the text, are to be put away. And the word put away means to put off like old clothes, to pick up and carry away. The aorist tense is to be done in a point of time. You're to be done with it what, uh, all together. You're to come to a decision. At any time where these things are possible, you are to come to a decision not to do them in that point of time. But it's interesting because it's a passive voice. In other words, the, pa the active voice is the, that the subject does the action of the verb. The passive voice, the subject receives the action of the verb. So the command here, and it is imperative mood, the command for you to put away could be better translated, let the Spirit of God take it from you. That's the idea. You can't do that in your own strength. You can't, with your own power and strength, just decide you're not going to be bitter anymore, you're not going to be wrathful anymore, or anger, angry, or you're not going to yell and scream anymore, you're not going to have any more evil speaking, and you're not going to have any more malice in your life, no more bad in your life. You can't do that. But you can't allow the Spirit of God to take control again so that He can do it. And that's, of course, what God wants you to do. Let the Holy Spirit pick these things up and carry them away from you. That's what the text has in mind. Then it says, as an alternative, let the Spirit of God produce a new attitude within your heart. Be kind one to another. Be kind. Krestos means gracious. You want to know something? It's plural. That's interesting. Let graciousnesses be a part of your life. Krestos means useful in the sense of constructive value. <coughs> if you want more on that, we made a whole study of that as one of the fruit of the Spirit in our study on the fruit of the Spirit. Tender-hearted means literally good intestines. The seat of emotion was uh, considered to be in the intestines. And uh, uh, it's interesting because doctors now are uh, coming to a conclusion that that indeed is where the emotions are found. Uh, that it has more to do with the stomach than it does to do, say, with the heart. Say you, but it just isn't very romantic to say I love you with all my stomach. You know that doesn't somehow come across to our English ears. But they're finding out that that's really where this emo, where, where where there's a great attachment. That's why when you uh, feel emotional, you feel it in uh, the tension uh, in your intestines rather than the other parts of you. And uh, there are many many implications of that that we won't go into. Uh, in the Old Testament, the emphasis on the, uh, the various internal organs is very, very keen uh, in regard to uh, God's dealing with us in our individual lives. And uh, he talks about the importance of, of every part of our body 
in the Old Testament especially, but the word came to mean to the Greeks someone who had a deep compassion for someone else. It was the idea of having a caring concern. That's what God wants in your life. Then it says forgiving. Now, it's fascinating here because there are two kinds of forgiveness. Two major words that are translated forgive. And by the way, the first one is A-P-H-I-E-M-I. And it means to put away. Now, this is a big subject, and I can only touch on it, but let me say, that's not the word here. This is a word that means, is a, in a legal sense, putting away of the sin. It is what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he brought about forgiveness so that the so that the sins could be sent away. Remember, he died not only for us, but for the whole world. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He made available forgiveness to anyone. The problem today is not a matter of whether God can forgive the sin of the sinner. That was taken care of and assured and guaranteed at the cross. The problem today is, what will a person do with his son, Jesus Christ? Salvation is wrought on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. But it is not, it is not a, a matter of God having to, uh, having to, to uh, resurrect uh, this idea of forgiveness every time he saves a sinner. He saves a sinner on the basis of his faith in Jesus Christ. That's another whole theological subject. When a person places faith in Jesus Christ, all, including forgiveness, is provided for him. And there, are, there is a place for the putting away of sin uh, in the sense of forgiving people. But there also is the word that is used here. And the word that is used here is the word C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Kerizomai, which means grace. Unmerited favor. It is what God does... That, that is irrespective of what the other individual does. Grace was shown to all men. Grace was bestowed to all men. There was charizomai, the, uh, the showing of oneself gracious, total forgiveness on the basis that the person is undeserving of it. It is simply a matter of an attitude of the heart whereby you, you purpose that no matter what they do to you, you will continue to show grace. And in essence, it means that you forgive in such a way that you never bring it up again. doesn't mean you can forget. People say, forgive and forget. Well, you can't forget. You can eventually. It can become almost a blurred memory. But your subconscious will keep reminding you of it. It's not a matter of forgiving and forgetting, but it's a matter of bearing it. It's a matter of saying, I will not bring it up again. I will not hold it against you. And you see, if you really have forgiven your husband, you will never be able to say, you remember last time I warned you and disastrous results. Now you better listen to me this time. You can never use that leverage. That's why people don't want to forgive this way. Because if they forgive this way, they're stuck. 
They've got to deal with the current issue in a biblical and godly way, and they will not have the privilege of being able to resurrect the past. And we want to resurrect the past because it gives us leverage. But you're to be kind, gracious one to another, tender-hearted with a deep concern for the individual, forgiving one another, acting in a gracious manner with that individual. Now, we don't have time to look at it, but there's a tremendous passage in the Gospel of Luke that teaches us this. I'll just give it to you in a nutshell rather than turning to it because I want to conclude this today. But here it is. The Lord says, how often should we forgive? Or the, the disciples said to the Lord, how often should we forgive? Seven times? The Lord said, 70 times seven. Then he went into a discourse on forgiveness. He did several things in that text. First of all, he told them that they had to forgive 70 times seven. And that they were to do, that, that, that if a man repents, in other words, changes his mind, that we are to always forgive. And uh, the disciples said at that point, Lord, increase our faith. We've got to have more faith in order to do this. And the Lord said, you got enough faith. Why, even if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed, be cast into the sea, and it'll do it. The problem, he says, is not your faith. The problem is your willingness to be obedient, to do it. And then he gave an illustration of an unprofitable servant. The unprofitable servant did not respond the way he felt. He was tired, but he recognized he had a duty to do. And when people commended him for doing his duty, he said, why commend me? I was only doing what an unprofitable servant would do. I just did my duty. And the illustration of that is simply this. You do not forgive because you feel like forgiving. You forgive out of obedience to God. You pragmatically obey. It's not a matter of simply feeling then as though you've forgiven. It's a matter of knowing you've been obedient or disobedient. You bring it up again, that's disobedience. Don't say, that's just me. That may be just you, but that's you disobeying. Call it what God calls it. God calls it sin. He calls it rebellion. He calls it disobedience. You do not react to the way you feel. You react in obedience. And so it's a very pragmatic thing. You say, I don't know whether I've forgiven him or not. The question is, have you brought it up again? Yes, I have. Well, then you've been disobedient, disobedient and you have not forgiven him. God commands you to forgive him. So forgive. You say, but I don't feel like I've forgiven him. That's all right. Just purpose never bring it up again. And if you bring it up again, confess it as disobedience to God. You see, that, whereas you cannot put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and all these things, the Holy Spirit has to do that for you. There is something you can do. You can forgive. You can refuse to bring that, up, that subject up again. Just simply refuse to do so. 
He said, I can never do that. You know, it's amazing what people can do when they put their mind to it, when they decide that that's what they want to do. I wonder if I promised you that I would give you $10,000 at the end of this week if you didn't bring this up again. I wonder, could you do it? $10,000. How many would like $10,000? Yeah, I wish I had it. I'd be glad for the experiment because I'd love to prove to you that for money, you'd be glad to let the hatchet be buried. But if you'll do it for money, shouldn't you do it for love? Love for the Lord? When you realize especially that the issue is this, to raise that issue again is disobedience to God. Disobedience to God causes a break in fellowship between you and God. The Holy Spirit is grieved. And the result is that you have no one to control your bitterness, your wrath, your anger, your clamor, your evil speaking. You have no one to control the malignant things, the malicious things in your life. You're trying to do it on your own. And you'll never make it. You need the Holy Spirit's power. So therefore, be gracious, be tender-hearted, and forgive. Refuse to bring it up ever again. Now, you do that, then obviously the Lord is going to bless and enrich your life. And you'll find that there will be no more resentment. You may feel badly still about things that have happened, but the resentment will be gone. And God will give you a new joy, the joy of knowing that you've freely forgiven, freely you have received, freely give. You're to forgive, show grace, even as God, for Christ's sake, has shown grace to you. The same power is at your disposal. Use it. And don't ever resent your husband's past failures. Let's bow, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the things that you're teaching us this day. Father, I pray that you give us the grace that we need to support our husbands, even when they do fail. Help us, Lord, to keep our mouths closed and not bring it up to them again. Lord, give us a forgiving spirit, we pray, with our children as well. We pray that the same spirit would be present in our lives. Thank you for bringing us up short in these things, Father, and continue to teach us and guide each lady, Lord, as she goes from this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That concludes this message. Please fast forward this tape. Thank you.